In that season of preparation where we reflect on the work that God has done, the things that God has done in order to bring a people to himself, in order to redeem us, and we, this, this Advent, have been asking the question, what's in a name? What, what's in a name? And we've been looking at the names that have been presented to us in the announcement that Gabriel the angel made to Mary the virgin when he arrived in order to tell her what God was going to do. And so I'm going to read to you the passage from Luke where uh, the uh, announcement is made and we'll look at the second name which has been given to us in the scripture. In the sixth month, that is in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, John the Baptist's mother, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord, Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is God's word. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord, thank you for this record. Thank you for this record of this account of the visitation and the announcement. And we would pray that we would just glean a little bit from this passage, that we might see afresh as we move into this season the kinds of things you are doing in order to fulfill your purposes in the earth. Teach us, illumine our heart and mind, illumine the page that we may understand and believe, and Lord, move us to obey. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Young Mary, the mother of our Lord, being visited by the angel Gabriel, uh, received the announcement that she was going to have a child by the power of God. 
And in this announcement, Gabriel gave or indicated four names that would be given to this child. The names by which this child would be called. Last week, we took a look at the name Jesus, which we saw means salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. And we saw that in this child, whoever this child would be, that God would work out a salvation for his people. We saw that in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, Gabriel met with Joseph as well and, and explained that you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. What we saw in that passage is that here's an identity. That is, there are, Jesus has his people. He has his people, and they are going to be, he's going to be a part of them, and they're going to be a part of him, and that he would bring salvation to them. And so we've been asking, what do these names mean? What do these names mean? Salvation is of the Lord, and uh, that was the first name. This morning we're going to look into the second name. That word that says, he will be called Son of the Most High. And what I want to convey to you this morning as we glance at this briefly um, is that being the Son of the Most High confirms the transcendent divinity of Jesus. The transcendent divinity. And what, what this is, this transcendent divinity is worthy of our deepest gratitude and our deepest adoration. So I'm hoping to draw that out this morning. My guess is typically that when we hear this phrase, Son of the Most High, he shall be called Son of the Most High, most of us respond to it by saying, well, it's just another name of saying he's God. And in its most reduced form, yeah, that's true. But it's, it's, it's not all that. It's so much more. And that's what I'd like to unpack. <clears throat> we sort of, uh, we, we, and since in the Bible names mean things, we need to explore what Most High has meant for 2,000 years. It's not something that suddenly appears uh, in the announcement of this angel. But for 2,000 years, there has been the treatment of this phrase, the Most High. The first, the first occurrence takes place way back in Genesis, where Abraham, in Genesis chapter 14, comes back from doing battle. Now, the scenario was this. There were four kings that gathered together and decided to attack kings within the land of Canaan. When they attacked, they took Abraham's nephew captive along with a lot of the goods that Abraham had owned. And so Abraham gathered his men, his fighting men together, and he went and defended his nephew, got him back, defeated those kings, brought back the goods. And as he's coming back, he is met on the fields by the high priest of God Most High. This is from Genesis chapter 14, that he meets Melchizedek, who is priest of God Most High. And Melchizedek blesses Abraham. 
and says, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Why is this important? Well, throughout the land of Canaan, there were 16 gods. There was a god of the sky, a god of the rain, a god of the clouds, a god of the soil, a god of fruitfulness, a god of the seas, a god of the rivers. Wherever there was a thing, there was some god associated with it. If we really take a look at Egypt, it was the same sort of thing. And if we take a look at the Greek world and the Roman world, again, it was the same sort of thing. And so when Abraham came back, it was simply assumed that because of his victory, he might acknowledge whoever the local god was. You know how this works? It works like this. Like if you're going to have any kind of peace in this world, you better make peace with the leadership of this town because they're the ones who rule over you, right? Well, the local god was the one who ruled over them. And so they're supposed to somehow acknowledge the deity of that God. But when Abraham comes back, he's met by Melchizedek, priest of God Most High. What that was stating, what that was declaring right there is that this El Elyon, whoever this is, is the one God who has full authority over all of these dinky little gods that people were bowing down to in the land. That this one God had rulership and possessed all of heaven and earth. Isn't that what Melchizedek said? God who is possessor, God most high, who is possessor of heaven and earth, blesses you. Right there we have the first declaration that this is the God who owns all things. This is the God who owns the heaven and the earth. He owns the storms as they come in. He owns the sunshine as is displayed upon us this morning. He owns the movement of the land and the creatures that crawl upon the land. He is possessor, God most high. And so when Abraham continues on his way, the king of Sodom comes to him and says, look, you just keep all the stuff you got in battle and just give me the men. And Abraham says this. He says, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I've made Abraham rich. Hear that? I've lifted my hand to God most high. The God who is the ruler over all gods. The God who possesses heaven and earth. Don't miss that. You know what that means? You don't actually own anything that you have. You are a steward. That's what you are. You are a steward. And God most high owns all things. So, Abraham recognizes that there is God most high possessor of heaven and earth. Now, there's two places in the Old Testament where this phrase, this way of referring to the eternal self-existent living deity, suggests that God is 
ruler over all things. In Daniel's case, there is this recognition of the sovereignty of God over Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and thus king over the nation of Babylon. And so we'll look at Daniel. Daniel 4.31. Nebuchadnezzar has just finished boasting about this great kingdom that he's built. Hey, look what I've done. I've just built this absolutely wonderful nation. These great buildings and all of this stuff. I am a most powerful king. And he'd been boasting about it for some time. And Daniel warned him and said, listen, you, you, you can't do that. You start boasting against God, God's going to show you what, who he is. But Nebuchadnezzar kept it up. He said, God has warned you, if, if you continue to do this kind of boasting, you're going to wind up crawling in the fields like an animal and eating grass like an ox. Nebuchadnezzar kept boasting. Genesis chapter, uh, rather Daniel chapter 4, verses 31 and 32. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there came a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills. That's an absolute. God rules nations. God rules nations and kings. And he does as he pleases with them, depending upon how well or how poorly they acknowledge him. As an aside, our nation is in danger. Plain and simple. We're going to be like Nebuchadnezzar sent to the fields like oxen and eating grass. Until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Well, that happened in Nebuchadnezzar's case. For seven years, he wound up eating grass and his hair growing long like the mane of a lion until he finally came to his senses and says, There's a God Most High. He rules over, and you know, Persia had a pantheon too. They had a whole bunch of gods. Don't think because we live here that we don't have a bunch of gods. They're all around us. Things that kind of command the affections of our hearts, and sometimes we'll manufacture those gods too. The fact is that we, like Abraham, should lift our hands in adoration and submission to the great Lord and possessor possessor of the earth. We should acknowledge, I've lifted my hand to the Lord God, possessor of heaven and earth, and worship and adore him. Now, because the Most High is sovereign over not just nations, he's sovereign over all of his creatures, we must bow our hearts in gratitude and worship. 
Psalm 47, verse 2 says, For the Lord Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. Psalm 18, The Lord also thundered in the heavens. The Most High uttered his voice. Hailstones and coals of fire were sent. Psalm 57, I cry out to God Most High, to, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. Psalm 135, 5 and 6, For I know the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth and in the depths of the seas. All of these verses affirm the fact that God acts sovereignly in our lives according to his purposes. Are we blessed? God has sovereignly bestowed those blessings. In his kindness and his mercy, he sovereignly bestowed them upon us. Have we undergone trial? God has sovereignly appointed our trials that we may grow in grace and place faith in him. Are we in the midst of just waiting for an answer to prayer and have been waiting for the longest time? God is sovereign over that that we might Be patient in him and look to him. Has God given us good friends and good companionship that we might understand that we're not really alone in the world, that we've got someone to bear the burden with us? It's God's sovereign provision to us, God's sovereign appointment. We thrash against that. We'd like to know that we're the master of our own lives, that we, we're going we're gonna to grab a hold of that steering wheel and take this car where we want it to go. That's how we are. And everything in the scriptures reminds us that God is God most high. This sovereign almighty God does as he pleases in the earth, and none can say to him, what are you doing? And it strikes a deep fear in our being. Even Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in 1 Kings eight twenty-two and 23, and he said, Lord God of Israel, there's no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven in the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. It's interesting that when you look at the the collection of Greek gods that existed during Jesus' time, there were a bunch of them. They started with the Titans, which included Kronos. And Titans produced the higher gods, which would have been Zeus, and Aphrodite, and others. There was no eternal God in that bunch. The only thing that was eternal was the heavens and the earth. That's what produced Kronos. And God owns the heavens and the earth. That's the declaration of scripture. El Elyon, the most high God over all. Now, here's how it was manifest. There was a time just before the uh, maturity of Samuel and before he was called to be a prophet that Israel went to war. They went to war with the Philistines. And because they were worried about whether or not that war was going to fall in their favor, 
They took the Ark of the Covenant, which was the emblem among Israel as to God's presence. They took it out into battle, and lo and behold, in the midst of the battle, the Ark was captured. Now, I put that in quotes, captured. And what happened was that, first of all, they took the Ark and they put it in the house of Dagon, which was the, the chief god among the Philistines in the city of Ashdod. And so they put the Ark of the Covenant next to the idol uh, Dagon. The next morning, they found the idol Dagon laying on the floor, aimed at the Ark of the Covenant as though it was fallen down prostrate and worshiping. And so what they decided to do was, okay, we're going we're gonna to put it back up next to the Ark of the Covenant. So the following morning, they walked into the house of Dagon, and the god Dagon was face down, hands cut off, head cut off, before the Ark of the Covenant. There is no god that's going to compete with the true god. Governments don't compete with the true god. No god that we manufacture in our hearts is going to compete with the, you know, our culture makes a god of love and affection. Our, our culture makes a god of sex. Our, god makes a cult, our culture makes a god of, of financial security. We make a god of peace, prosperity, and not being disturbed at all. We make a god of having our own way. Choices. I mean, that's a big one in our culture, right? All of those gods are going to fall before the true god who is El Elyon, God over all. So it happened to the Philistines. It will happen in the future. The second incident is really partly humorous. Once Dagon fell before the ark, the people of Philistines said, you know what, let's get this thing out of here. It's going to be a problem. And so they sent it to the next city over, and that city wound up being inflicted with tumors and rats. And they said, enough of this. We want this to go to some other city. So they moved it on to the next city. That city got inflicted with tumors and rats. The third city got afflicted with tumors and rats. And they finally came to the conclusion, the more we move the Ark of the Covenant of God around in our country, he is going to destroy us. Because they weren't going to worship him. They are trying to possess him. Finally, they said, just send this back to Israel. We don't want any part of this. So Israel thought that they were going to defeat the Philistines by taking this magic charm with them, right? And in reality, once the ark was captured, God himself started his conquest of the Philistine territories by afflicting the people the way that he wanted. He's most high over all the gods, He's most high over any God that we can create and manufacture. He is sovereign over his creatures. He is the Lord of hosts. He is sovereign over heaven and earth. He is sovereign over the manufacture of gods. He is the magnificent transcendent divinity. And he controls and governs all the host of heaven. All the host of heaven is at his command. I think I've painted a big enough picture here. 
What does it mean that this baby will be son of the Most High? When he is still wet from birth, he is sovereign God over the universe. When he is still drinking milk from his mother's breast, he is sovereign God over the heavens and the earth and the gods, the paltry little gods of men and all of the empty pursuits that people chase after. And when he begins walking through the earth, he is most high. Here's what's wonderful about this, beloved. If you're going to sneak up on a deer, you would have to do it gently and slowly and quietly because it's skittish and it would run in a moment. I was working in the woods over toward the lakeshore almost 15 years ago. And I was taking notes about some wildflowers on the soil. And as I'm taking some notes, I hear this pounding on the soil and I hear a snort. And I look up and I turn my head slowly and about 25 feet away is a young deer just looking at me. I went back to making my notes on the wildflowers and where they were on the, on the ridge line and so on. I hear the pounding, stamping, and the snorting again, and now it's 15 feet away. And I turn back and I start making notes. And then I hear it again, only a little bit closer, almost eight feet away. And I look and I said, Good morning, what do you want? That deer just kind of darted into attention and ran off into the woods. He was approaching me and he got frightened. What if I was approaching him? You know what happened when we sinned in the garden, right? God came walking in the midst of the garden in the cool of the day. Adam, where are you? Adam, where are you? Well, Lord, we hid from you. Why did you hide from me? Well, we were naked. What do you mean you were naked? Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the fruit of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Since the fall, we have been skittish about coming close to God, our creator and our maker and our sustainer. If he would have appeared in all of his high, majestic possessor of heaven and earth, God over the God's glory, we would have run in utter terror freaking out that he had come into our presence. What does it mean that he's son of the Most High? In God's steadfast love, he approached us so gently and so slowly and so tenderly that we didn't run away. He approached us in the most unthreatening way that we could bear it 
because we thought we had control over it. The most high God, possessor of heaven and earth, approached us as a baby in utter need. That's the steadfast love of God. That is worthy of adoration and gratitude and worship. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. The manifestation of Jesus in his most highness is such that the demons recognized him right away. Who are you? We know who you are. You are son of the most high God. Have you come to torment us? That's what they cried out. And Jesus reminded them over and over again, be quiet, stop talking, say nothing to anybody. As he cast out demons and sent them along the way. The people finally started to recognize something as Jesus was entering the village during that last week of his life when they pulled down palm branches and laid them in the road and said, Glory to God in the highest. Hosanna. Hosanna. The fact is, beloved, that this Jesus, who is most high God, comes to us in the tenderest, most defenseless, most subtle way in order to keep us from running away. How does, the, how does the Christmas carol go? Silently, oh silently, you come to every human heart. That's how he comes to us. He is son of the most high God because he is the tender, steadfast, loving, gentle approach. This is worthy of our adoration and worship. Every time we look into it, to see this majesty shrouded in flesh in such a way that we're not, a fr- we're not frightened by it, but are drawn to him because of his mercies and his compassions, because of his gentleness and his love. May we also be in that last day called sons of the Most High, Because we have loved our enemies, done good, even as Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, kind to the ungrateful, because our reward will be called sons of the Most High God. May we be made like that, Jesus. May that be our adoration and our gratitude. Let's pray together, shall we?